everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm thrilled to be joined by the perfectly marvelous Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's artistic associate and resident dramaturg. Hi, Annika. Hello, Michael. How are you? Are you perfectly marvelous today? I'm perfectly marvelous and having a marvelous time. You know, it's a beautiful day here in Connecticut, actually. I, I'm i sad to be inside recording because I would love to go to the beach. But Annika, would you like to tell us what is in the spotlight this episode? Yes, indeed. This episode, we are putting Cabaret in the spotlight. The 1966 musical by Kander and Ebb with a book by Joe Masteroff, originally directed by Hal Prince, the great and um, subject of a legendary movie and a really fantastic revival. I'm excited to dive into Cabaret. As we went back and reviewed it, I really do love this show. It's, I, it is one of my favorites. I, I think it is officially in the one of my favorites category. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's a really ambitious show, but it really achieves something that I think few other shows achieve in quite the same way. So it's unusual. It's kind of its own creature, but it's it's such a great show. And it has had such a fascinating journey over the years, too, that will be fun to dive into. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So I don't think I can delay this segment any longer. It is time for the speed test, where Annika puts 60 seconds on the clock and I do my best to summarize Cabaret in 60 seconds. Hudson's Floor Wax doesn't matter. 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 So do you have 60 seconds on the clock, Annika? Indeed I do. Are you ready? Uh, as ready as I'll ever be. I promise I've not prepped this at all. Okay. So, three, two, one, go. Okay, so Cabaret takes place basically in the Kit Kat Club, which is in 1930s pre-Hitler uh, taking over Germany, but the Nazi party's on the rise. Uh, we have the MC who like guides us through the evening, but really the, cattle, the catalyst is Cliff, um, Clifford Bradshaw, who arrives in Berlin uh, to, after trying to write a novel, he runs into Ernst, this guy who's a little shady, but um, he takes him to the Kit Kat Club where we meet Sally Bowles and he gets him like set up an apartment with um, Fraulein Schneider. And then uh, basically he and Sally start having a wild affair um, that, takes us through the rest of the show basically um where sally moves in with him he get there they are pregnant um which is exciting he ends up doing um some of ernst's dirty work for him even though he doesn't realize he's working on behalf of the nazis and ernst is not so he stops doing that work and he realizes that nazism is on the rise and he needs to leave and go back home he wants to take sally with him so they can be in america together she doesn't want to go they break up she has an abortion um which really hurts him and then also through that we're uh, we're talking about timer oh so close I couldn't get the stuff about Fraulein Schneider in, um, and uh, Herr Schultz, you know, uh, her Jewish becomes fiance, but then now um, ex-fiance um, because she's scared of the, uh, what's going to happen in Nazi Germany to people who are married to Jews and to Jewish people. And then Fraulein Kost, everyone's favorite minor character who is just sleeping with all the sailors. So that's basic. And then the MC always performs and is commenting on things and all that. So an essence. Yeah, I think that was great. You, you definitely got to the heart of it. And that brings us to Why God, Why? Why God? Why today? 
where we talk about the big idea that really unifies all of the characters and is the spine of the narrative. And for Cabaret, that really is the central question of what would you do in this circumstance, which obviously uh, Fraulein Schneider sings in Act Two, literally a song that is that title, but all the characters and how they relate to Nazism and whether or not they will stand up against it is really what drives the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a show that's largely about complacency and how easy it is to turn a blind eye to an encroaching evil, basically, and how tempting it is to just shut your eyes and focus on the fun you're having or the the party that the world is instead of realizing the horrors to come. Yeah, it essentially enjoying and bathing in your ignorance of the topic and claiming ignorance is noble or that ignorance absolves you from any guilt. Yes. Which is a theme that resonates through the years and I think certainly feels relevant in this moment that we are going through right now in the world. Yeah, it feels very resonant. So Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us more about the origins of Cabaret? We can never go back to before. Okay, so Cabaret is based on a play, which is based on a semi-autobiographical novella by the writer Christopher Isherwood. So in 1939, he wrote Goodbye to Berlin, which was based on time that he had spent in Berlin in 1929. He was a British writer who had traveled there to join his friend, the poet and writer W.H. Auden. And they lived in Berlin with a bunch of different writers and, and kind of had this great time in what Berlin was then. And he collected those stories of his time there and turned them into all these different short stories and and novellas. So one of them was about Sally Bowles, a character who was inspired by a British expat and cabaret singer uh, with whom Isherwood briefly shared an apartment, whose name was Jean Ross. He took the name Sally Bowles partially from his friend Paul Bowles, who was a composer who traveled in the same circles in Berlin. But Oh my God, I went on such a deep dive into Jean Ross, which I highly recommend because she was so fascinating. So she, unlike Sally Bowles, who seems like she's destined to burn out pretty quickly after the events of Cabaret, Ross became a writer, a war correspondent, a film critic, a celebrated film critic, and she was a lifelong communist and political activist. So she was in some ways very like Sally Bowles because apparently she was famous among her friends for just being naked all the time and having these affairs that she would talk all about. And and she was a cabaret singer and she was a model. She was beautiful. And she just had that kind of joie de vivre and that life force that Sally Bowles had. But unlike Sally Bowles, she was super politically active and super engaged and a real intellectual. And it was just, she's the best. But she never liked the association of Sally Bowles with herself because she felt like it overshadowed the actual details of her life. And she was not at all naive or apolitical. In fact, she felt that Isherwood and his friends were much more politically aligned with Sally because they were the ones who sort of were into the partying and and didn't really care about or notice the the political realities that were happening. The other thing I love about her, one of the details, was that she inspired the jazz standard song, These Foolish Things Remind Me of You by Eric Mashwitz because they had had an affair and she was the inspiration for that song. So there was a lot of art that came from people who knew her. That is fascinating. And 
It makes a lot of sense, even in like the characterization of Sally Bowles, actually, but that's fascinating. It's fast. I mean, very clearly, she was someone who had that kind of magnetism that is what Sally has, too. There's something about her that you just can't look away from. But yeah, she inspired this art. And the funny thing is, too, is that later Isherwood, who went on to become a writer and wrote several things that were notable, had a long career, um, is probably most well known for A Single Man. And the other thing is his uh, memoir, Christopher and His Kind. But he met the writer Truman Capote, who was inspired by Isherwood's writing. And Capote ended up being inspired by the story of Sally Bowles and Isherwood to write Breakfast at Tiffany's, which makes total sense if you think about Sally Bowles and Holly Golightly. And also in both of these original source materials, it's like this kind of man who's struggling with his own sexuality or figuring out his own sexuality, who's kind of awed by this vibrant woman. So in some ways she inspired Sally Bowles and Holly Golightly. So after Isherwood wrote the novella in 1939, Goodbye to Berlin, the playwright John Van Druten turned it into a play called I Am a Camera, which opened in 1951, which is most notable for two things. One is that Julie Harris won a Tony for her portrayal of Sally Bowles. She was super lauded. And second was a review that the play got, unfortunately, and famously from Walter Kerr, which simply was me no like a. Leica being a brand of camera, which I think people don't realize today, hence that joke. Jokes are always funnier when you have to explain them. <laughs> I also love that the play was called I Am a Camera because it's a direct quote from Isherwood's book, which is I Am a Camera with its shutter open, quite passive, recording, not thinking, which I think is a really interesting view into himself and the role he plays in the book, but also how he serves as an inspiration for Cliff. Yeah, definitely. So even though I Am a Camera was not super well received, the writer Sandy Wilson, most famous for writing The Boyfriend, thought that it would be a good inspiration for a musical and set about adapting it with David Black as the producer. And he had even gone so far as to get Julie Andrews to agree to star as Sally Bowles, which is a fascinating bit of casting. And he had written about two thirds of the score and a lot of the book, if not all of it. But the producer wanted some rewrites and they were having some rights issues with the John Van Druten estate. So enter Hal Prince, who, because he was Hal Prince, was able to get the rights from the Van Druten estate. And he listened to Sandy Wilson's score and really didn't think it was the right match for the show and is on the record as saying it sounded too much like the boyfriend and he was not a fan of of the sound and he brought along the book writer joe masteroff who had just done she loves me with prince and the writers john kander and fred ebb who had just done flora the red menace with him so they go about crafting what will become cabaret and it's a multi-year process. They describe it as quite an epic process, in fact, in terms of rewrites meetings. Kendra and Ebb wrote something like 50 songs for the show when it only has, you know, 14. There's a, a, a substantial amount of work that goes into it before it goes into rehearsals or even casting. So one of my favorite stories is that initially Hal Prince had actually cut the song Cabaret. He didn't think it was that great a song. And during one of their note sessions, Kander and Ebb were quite subservient to Prince and basically did whatever he said. And the choreographer, Ron Field, was really surprised by that from Kander and Ebb. And he said, you know, you guys really just do kind of whatever he wants. Like, you've written some great songs that aren't even in the show. And they were talking about, they were like, oh, there's one song we really liked. And they played a bit of it for Field. And Field was like, that's a great song. It should be in the show. And previous to it being reinstated in the show, 
and obviously becoming the title number, they were planning to call the show Vilkamen, which is an interesting little nugget. So the casting process is also kind of interesting. They wrote the role of Fraulein Schneider for Lottie Linnea and the role of Herr Schultz for Jack Guilford. Interestingly, they had a huge issue finding a Sally Bowles that they thought was appropriate, and a young Liza Minnelli came in and auditioned for the creative team. And while Candor and Ebb thought that she was great and perfect for the role, Hal Prince and Joe Masteroff disagreed and did not think that she was right for the role at all, in fact, and passed on her, which obviously she goes on to star in the movie and win an Oscar for that performance, kind of becoming the performance that has defined her career. One of the other things to note about Cabaret and the history of musical theater is that its design is incredibly influential in not only the way Cabaret the show was created, staged, conceived, but also in what could be done design-wise in a musical. With the tilted mirror that reflected the audience when they came in to sit down, that then came up and, ref and reflected the stage floor of the Kit Kat Club. It's a really, really transformative set that really became front and center of the structure of the show even. And Boris Aronson, who designed it, had tons of meetings with Hal Prince just about the story and how the show should move and the characters and their intentions and things like that. And then basically just delivered him the set. They didn't have a ton of conversation about it because they had done so much talking about the show itself. Not that it designed itself, but it, there was not actually a ton of detailed conversation about what it should look like. It just kind of came from him. Yeah, it's interesting because this show in every one of its incarnations has always had a certain rawness and something that was more in your face about it than normal shows. I mean, this was an unusual thing for an audience from the moment that they stepped into the theater. There was no overture. The curtain was up and they were looking at this empty stage with this mirror just facing back at them. And then the way the whole show started was just with the drum roll and cymbal. It was, it really was different from most shows at the time, which were, you know, sit down, the curtain goes up, the lights go down, you get an overture. There's a lot of things that kind of lead you by hand into the show. This show from its very beginning was a lot more unbuffeted, basically. You just were dropped right into this world, right into this club, right into this kind of empty, not lush world. So it was really interesting that that was very important to them from the beginning. Yeah, and we, and we don't talk a ton about design and how design ends up really influencing the success or failure of these musicals in their initial incarnations, but this is certainly a trailblazer. And Boris Aronson in general was a trailblazer in terms of theater design and musical theater design that we don't talk about as much because we're, we talk about the performers and the directors and the writers, but the designers are absolutely key to the development process as well. And you can see the success of that in Cabaret. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's such a good point because I mean, with any new musical, you know, in some cases it's a designer or an actor or some other element that, that really shapes the show. And that you're right. They don't get enough credit for that often. So Joel Gray as the MC had this very distinctive look, which Ben Brantley in his review of the revival described as a satanic marionette, which I think is so perfect. But yes, this kind of white-faced, pink-cheeked, and evil Cupid look. And that was partially inspired by Hal Prince's recollections of a club he went to when he was a young man in the army in Stuttgart. There was a nightclub called Maxim's. And he said that there was a, a dwarf MC, quote-unquote, hair parted in the middle and lacquered down with brilliantine, his mouth made into a bright red Cupid's bow who wore heavy false eyelashes. 
So that image was what inspired him and Joel Gray to create this kind of shape. Although Joel Gray is the one who's credited with finding the actual sort of white face paint look because he found a grease paint that was called juvenile pink. And he thought to himself that the MC was the kind of creep who would want to make himself look really young and he would like spackle on this makeup. So it was really something that the two of them collaborated on, but it's such a striking image that Prince pulled from this experience that he had with this German nightclub. And another image that really inspired Prince was the centerfold of Life magazine after the Little Rock riots, which is described as an image of a group of blonde males in their late teens who, in his words, were, quote, stripped to the waist wearing religious medals snarling at the camera like a pack of hounds. And there's a great story of him showing the cast that picture and everyone in the cast thinking that it was from Hitler's Germany and not current day America. So speaking to the obviously the racial tensions in Hitler's Germany and the then present day America. And of course, one of the important things to note about this show, in addition to this kind of drop you right into this club, is the musical is a mixture of diegetic and non-diegetic songs, which basically diegetic means sound whose source is visible on screen. So music that is made because it would have been made in the context. So for example, all of the songs that happen in the club are diegetic because you, you would see those songs happening if you were sitting in a club and being entertained. But something like Perfectly Marvelous, which Sally Bowles sings to Cliff just as part of daily life is non-diegetic. So the show was both of them, even though in the earliest incarnation, it was intended to be a play that just had a whole intro section that was spotlights of different pieces of Berlin and all that would have been songs. But as Kander and Ebb were writing it, they realized that they actually had a lot more that felt like a book musical than this unusual introduction thing. So, so it ended up becoming the show. And interestingly enough, when they were out of town, Jerome Robbins came and saw the show and said, just cut everything that isn't in the club, which luckily they did not do. But yeah, so it's very unusual that way too, where the club and the songs that are happening in the club and the music that's happening outside of the club are separated, but they kind of bleed together in a really interesting way. It's an unusual show, certainly in its structure. Yeah, it's also really interesting to hear the comments of some of the theater greats that came and gave notes to Hal Prince. George Abbott, who was really influential in getting Hal Prince to change the structure from a three-act musical to a two-act musical, which was a huge game changer for the show Out of Town in Boston. And even when you read the show or do the show to this day, act two feels like almost like a blink of an eye because so much has happened in act one. And well, it doesn't, it's not that it's overloaded. It just, it is very well plotted. And then it feels like act two happens so quickly. So when it transferred to Broadway, it opened in November of 1966 at the Broadhurst Theater. Then it transferred to the Imperial and then the Broadway, which seems really weird to us now because that pretty much never happens, but it happened a lot back then. And it, it was a hit. It ran for almost three years, which was a, a healthy run. And it was nominated for 13 Tonys, of which it won 10, including Best Musical and Best Score. So Cabaret is adapted into a movie in 1972 directed by the famous Broadway choreographer Bob Fosse, though he had nothing to do with the original production of Cabaret on Broadway. And his tone, aesthetic, style are all over the movie and have really become indelible from the piece and have really left a mark. The film is highly successful and wins eight Oscars, the most for any movie without winning Best Picture, uh, which it lost to The Godfather, and actually in a Best Supporting Actor Oscar, for Joel Gray, who joins the ranks of very few performers who have won a Tony and an Oscar for the same role. And obviously starring Liza Minnelli, whose career was since defined 
by that performance. But the movie makes a lot of changes from the musical and really cuts basically all the numbers that are not in the Kit Kat Club and famously adds Mine Hair to the score, as well as Maybe This Time and Money, which were all not in the original Broadway production. I mean, the movie is so different from the musical. In some ways, it's hard to even compare them because, like, uh, you know, Sally becomes an American, Cliff becomes Brian, who's actually British, and the characters of Fräulein Schneider and Herr Schultz are cut entirely. There's a different subplot that is still about anti-Semitism and romantic relationships, but the movie is so drastically different that in some ways it's fascinating that Bob Fosse's style has been so inseparable from the musical cabaret because they feel like two different entities. Yeah, it's really true. I saw the movie for the first time a few weeks ago and I was so shocked because I knew the show and I was like, what? Where is Fräulein Schneider? You know, Fräulein Schneider is a character, but like for a very short amount of time. Herr Schultz is gone. The, the, it's just it's like there's so much that's different and, and added too. It's not even just subtracted. It's additional stuff. And it's pretty wild it is it is wild because in, in prepping we went back and read the original script we read the revival script and then i i watched the movie and it is completely different i don't you know i don't want to get into critiquing the movie but it just it feels so different yeah and even liza minnelli i mean i love what you said about her auditioning for the show but it's hard i think she's the perfect sally Bowles for the movie and it's it's hard for me to imagine her as the sally Bowles for the show it's just a, such a different entity so after the original production, there were a few other productions like a London production, which starred Judy Dench as Sally, which is kind of interesting to think about. And then the movie happened and then there were more revivals along the pike, uh, including most notably in 1987, Hal Prince did another version of the show with Joel Grey as the MC again. It's kind of interesting when you think of what's going to happen later with the revival in 1998, which also came back. So it's a show that weirdly enough has had a lot of different versions, but but occasionally they will build upon the previous ver version of the same thing. For the 1987 revival, they made some script changes. They made some adjustments after the movie. Some of the movie stuff went into the script. Very interesting changes along the way. And then I think the revival that probably looms the most large in people's mind is one that opened on Broadway in 1998, which is the Sam Mendes production. And that actually had its start in 1993. Sam Mendes directed a production for the Donmar Warehouse in London, which had starred Jane Horrocks as Sally and uh, Alan Cumming as the MC, who then was, was really not well known. And it was pretty well lauded. It was a very different look, take on the show. It was really stripped down. A lot of the performers played instruments. So the dancers were the, the band, which was something that now is pretty common but then was not really seen at all. It was one of the first shows to have done that. So that version came to Broadway in 1998 under the aegis of Roundabout. But Sam Mendes said, if you're going to bring it to Broadway, we can't really do it in a Broadway theater. We have to really do it at a club. So they found a club that is now the Stephen Sondheim Theater, but then was this old nightclub that had been known as the Xenon Club. And before that, it was an X-rated movie house. So it was kind of the perfect level of decrepit and falling apart and with this kind of interesting CD past. And they really built it to be a club. So there were tables you could sit at, you could order drinks. It was this kind of gritty club from the moment you stepped inside. And when it opened in 1998, Alan Cumming was the MC again, but Natasha Richardson was Sally. And it really was mind blowing. I mean, this was the, this was the cabaret that I was first exposed to. And it was stunning. They made some different script changes from 
the original and from the 1987 version. And they restored some things that they had kind of danced around in the earlier versions, largely around sexuality and a lot of the kind of club, the dirtiness of the club was a lot more present. And they changed the ending to be something a little bit more confrontational about what happens after after the action of the show. And it just, I mean, it was so great. Ugh, I'm not even going to go into it because then I'll talk about it for a long time. But a construction crane fell on the club. So the show had to close temporarily. Luckily, nobody was hurt. And then they decided to change venues because they couldn't fix the theater fast enough. So they reopened Studio 54, the famous hedonistic nightclub of the 1970s, which is where the show moved to and ran for a while. But it was great that like this show took over these two club locations. They didn't just go into a theater. They made their stamp in these places with such history. So it was really great. And then that revival came back in 2014 with Alan Cumming again as the MC, just as Joel Gray had come back as the MC in 1987 and now starring Michelle Williams as Sally Bowles. So it's it was just a really stellar production and I love it so much. And Studio 54 is obviously now a Broadway house and the Kit Kat Club then after the construction accident became the Henry Miller uh, which then became the Stephen Sondheim and is an operating Broadway theater. So Cabaret is responsible for birthing two Broadway theaters in yeah. a world where we don't get new Broadway theaters very often. Yeah, definitely. And also, I mean, I think it speaks to a sort of need that was present in the theater world, which is like, sometimes you have a show that doesn't really fit well in a proscenium house. And, you know, from the get-go, from the original production of Cabaret in the 60s, this was not a conventional theatrical experience. It was supposed to feel a little bit like you were in a seedy club. And obviously in the revival, they went even further with that. But the fact that those theaters have now become viable houses themselves shows that they, they are not the only shows that require sometimes spaces that are not conventional spaces. And with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside the score of Cabaret. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so with Cabaret, we're going to do something a little bit different. So one of the things that's really interesting about Candor and Ebb's songs is that they are a little bit different than a lot of musical theater songs. They are very presentational writers. So in this show, in Chicago, and some of their other shows, there's always a sense that you are watching a song be performed. Now, obviously in this show, it's called Cabaret. You started out at the Kit Kat Club. We have that whole diegetic thing. They are literally songs that are being performed at a club. So it makes sense that they are songs that sound like they would be performed at a club, that you would hear at a club. They're not songs that just illustrate people's emotions or feelings. But even the ones that aren't that have a sense that they are also that same kind of presentational. They're very compact. They never get too internal. And the structure of the song is never really quite allowed to break down in the way that we've seen with some other writers who will kind of play with standard song structures or moments to really show you what's going on with that character. They're all a little bit tidy for Candor and Ebb. And I think that's very intentional, but it does mean that it's a little bit harder for me to break down a song in the same way that I normally do because they're not containing a lot of informational DNA in the songs themselves as much as they are creating a song that itself is informational in the structure of the show. I'll, don't worry, I'll explain more what that means. So in some ways, this is very appropriate 
for this show in particular, Cabaret, which is set in Weimar, Berlin, and for Kander and Ebb, because they were trying to make a show that sounded like it was from that era, understandably. And obviously the big titans of that era and that time and that place in theater were Bertolt Brecht and his frequent collaborator, Kurt Weil, the composer. So there's a lot of Kurt Weil's DNA in this show. A lot of these songs sound like Kurt Weil songs. They have that that feel of of Berlin. They have those chord progressions, the same keys. Um, they definitely wanted to place it, which they really have beautifully. But I think that something else is going on here too. So Brecht used music in his plays, but he didn't use them in the same way that musicals do. He always wanted audiences to know and remember that you were watching theater. They, he never wanted people to get too comfortable. So when we talk about things, I mean, Brechtian is a famous, famously slippery word. It refers to a lot of different things. But there's that sense of breaking the fourth wall, of constantly taking you out of the action to remind you that you're watching a piece of theater. Brecht liked to keep you at arm's length from the action. He didn't really want you to connect entirely with the action on stage for various reasons, but also because he felt it was making you engage with the storytelling in a way that was sort of emotionally unsatisfying for you sometimes, which would in turn allow you to go out and think about what you've learned and seen and um, really be full of that kind of unsatisfied energy. In brief, this is obviously a lot longer of a thing. So he liked to put something between the audience and the action. So Cabaret does this with the MC, who obviously is constantly breaking the fourth wall, talking to you in the audience as though you're the audience of the Kit Kat Club. There's a little bit of that going on there. Although the MC is not entirely Brechtian because it's not, he's not ever talking to you as the audience of the show. He's always talking to you as the audience of the Kit Kat Club. So it's not entirely a fully breaking the fourth wall situation. But, so Kandra never clearly interested in, in having this happen. And Joe Masteroff, obviously the book writer. But they also are doing this with the songs. By having even the songs that are non-diegetic, or basically the songs that do not happen in the Kit Kat Club, feel a little bit like they're a performance that could be performed at a cabaret out of context. In some ways, they're doing what Brecht was trying to do too. They're reminding you that the show is a show, that there's a performative element to this, even when people are just living their lives and singing to each other in the course of a sort of standard musical uh, reality. And there's certainly a big theme in this show of who people are and how things look versus how things really are, whether they're lying to themselves, lying to other people, able to face the truth of themselves or the truth of the situation. So having the songs kind of subtly remind you of this idea that everyone is to some degree performing is sort of brilliant. And it goes a little bit deeper too, because Brecht also felt strongly that the songs in his plays that he loved having, but that they should never really illustrate the plot like a conventional musical, as I said, but rather step outside the action and contrast with it or somehow illustrate the character's emotions without overtly doing that specifically. So Brecht would never have something like Soliloquy from Carousel where Billy Bigelow just sings all his feelings out but he might have Billy Bigelow step out and sing a story of a guy who had a, a situation that was similar. You know, it was always one steps removed. He wanted it to be an accompaniment to the dramatic action, but not necessarily part of the plot. And what's kind of amazing is Kander and Ebb sort of do this as well. Most of the songs in Cabaret, which are in the club usually, do not overtly move the plot forward. In the club, they're just numbers that you're seeing in the club. But the ones that do, like Perfectly Marvelous, which is Sally singing to Cliff, also don't really contain a ton of plot. 
right? Major decisions are not really made over the course of the song. They're more often like charm songs that are sort of illustrating a little bit of the feeling, a little bit of the moment. But they do feel like self-contained numbers that can be removed from their context fairly successfully. It's hard to think of a song from the show Cabaret that couldn't be sung in someone's, you know, cabaret. You know what I mean? Like you can take them out fairly easily and sing them on their own and people in the audience wouldn't be like, what is the song? Why are we listening to this? I feel like I'm missing a ton of story that I need for this number. So in contrast, what we talked about with Les Mis last episode, you know, those songs are doing a ton of contextual informational work and you really couldn't just pull out Javert's suicide and sing that song and present it at a cabaret without people in the audience who don't know Les Mis being like, what are you, what are you talking about? So it's a little bit more, they're a little bit more self-contained. So it's interesting because it's not containing information down to the marrow of those notes and lyrics as you can analyze in another show. The songs are acting as entities in the structure of the show and they are doing two very different things, which is what I'm actually gonna look at. So the first one is illustration. So for this one, I'm gonna look at a song that they actually changed from the original Broadway production to the movie and then subsequent revivals. So this is in the moment in the show where Cliff has just found out that Sally is pregnant and he's decided that he's gonna commit and they're gonna raise the child and he needs money to raise the child. So he decides that he's gonna do the work that Ernst has been asking him to do, which entails for Cliff choosing to be willfully ignorant of what the work is supporting, which is the Nazi party. Although it seems clear that Cliff kind of has an idea that this is something bad and something that he wouldn't support, but he, he doesn't even wanna know. He decides not to find out. He's choosing to sort of sidestep the morality of it. So let's just play a little bit of the original song that was in this particular spot. This is from the original Broadway cast recording. This is going to be Joel Gray singing this song. You can go listen to it if you want, but I'm going to play about a minute of it here because I'm not going to dive in deeper than that. So it might be satisfying. My father needs money, my uncle needs money, my mother is thin as a reed. But me, I'm sitting pretty, I've got all the money I need. My dearest friend Fritzy is out of his wits, he has four starving children to feed. But me, I'm sitting pretty. I've got all the money I need. I know my little cousin Eric is credit is hysterical, and also cousin Emma at the pond is mother's Emma, and my sister and my brother took the hawking one another too. But I've got some talents which build up my balance, or even my bankers agreed that me, I'm sitting pretty. I've got all the money I need. All right, so that's a great song. Super fun, super catchy. You get it stuck in your head. Very joyous and bright. What it's illustrating here is the idea that Cliff, the singer, which is the MC, but here he's kind of representing Cliff, has money while everyone around him is desperate for it. So it's making that point very well, right? Thematically, Cliff is choosing to ignore the reality of the situation around him by turning a blind eye to the fact that he is supporting the Nazi party by smuggling these things in for Ernst and just closing his eyes so that he can get the money himself. So that comes through loud and clear, and that's great. That's a really uh, shading the moment in terms of that. But the tone of the song is unapologetically, unmissably celebratory and happy and brassy and fun. So coming after the song right here, the message of 
Cliff's potential selfishness and the direction that Berlin is heading, which is that these things are kind of escalating, you don't really hear in this song. And you've got these chorus who are kind of singing along, but they're kind of happy too. They don't sound like anything other than just sort of backup, supporting this notion of this singer who's singing that like he's got everything he needs, so he's ignoring his friends who have starving children and his mother and all of these close family members who are really struggling. So for the movie, they wrote a new song for this spot, which they then combined with Sitting Pretty for the 1980s revival. And then eventually they also went with for the 1993, but then eventually that Sitting Pretty made it out of the show, was pushed out of the show. And they went with this number. This song is in the movie too, but I'm going to play the roundabout revival, the Sam Mendes revival, which tips it darker than the movie does. That's just my little caveat. Money makes the world go round, the world go round, the world go round. Money makes the world go round, it makes the world go round. A mark, a yen, a buck, or a pound, a buck. Or a pound, a buck, or a pound is all that makes the world go round. That clinking, clanking sound can make the world go round. If you happen to be rich and you feel like a night's entertainment, you can pay for a gay escapade. If you happen to be rich and alone and you need a companion, you can ring ding-a-ling for the mate. If you happen to be rich and you find you are left by your lover, though you moan and you groan quite a lot, you can take it on the chin, call a cab and begin to recover on your 14-carat yacht. Money makes the world go around, the world go around, the world go around. Money makes the world go around, of that we can be sure. I'm being poor. Money, 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 Oh, such a such a great song. So this is a different tone altogether, but you can hear this kind of creepy intro with almost like a fairy tale gone terribly wrong, nursery rhyme gone terribly wrong feeling, which is basically a little bit of piano. And then this very vile sound. This is a much more uh, Weimar Berlin sounding song than Sitting Pretty which is a lot darker and less happy. It's still kind of fun and you've got that kind of sense of like a dirty, it's a little bit dirtier, a little bit raunchier. And it's a similar idea to Sitting Pretty. If you have money, you can do anything you want, uh, both in terms of like, you can just go off and be on your boat, but also morally, people will let you get away with anything you want to do, right? Um, So they're still getting at the idea that money trumps morality, but the song itself is so much darker and the tune more minor and the keening from the chorus acts as a sort of combination begging and craving, right? You can really hear in that like money, 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 ooh, ooh, as though they need money, but they also would be willing to do whatever they can to get it, right? So they're both in the position of like, they're not innocents who just don't have any money. They also have that same sort of craving where they'll do whatever they can. They, They crave it. You can just feel it. You can just feel their want. They're kind of almost like a lust sound for that. 
So this one I think is a better illustration of what's actually happening. Cliff is heading down a dark path and potentially a dangerous one doing this for Ernst. And you can hear that in the music that things are stepping into a darker territory, both for Cliff and for the country. And it's interesting to have that intro here because you can kind of be led into the idea that all you have to do is kind of make one decision and then it escalates, right? It starts slow, it starts by drawing you in and then it builds to this more kind of raunchy thing that keeps going. And you can see what Kander and Ebb are doing here with both of these songs, which is that they're using the, the club songs to illustrate what is happening in the lives of the characters who are outside of the club, right? They're providing shading for you, the audience, of the story that is happening over there. So in some ways, it's, it's exactly as Brecht wanted to do with his songs in his shows. It's not overtly speaking to it. It's not the MC singing about bringing suitcases over from the Nazis. It's not Cliff singing the song about doing this. But we know exactly what's going on because we have this song illustrating it for us. And we know exactly what's going on because the music is telling us what we have to be aware of, right? Which is that it's very seductive when you just want to have money and you just can make whatever choices you want to make for that money, right? Everybody understands that money makes the world go around, but we can hear in this song the pulling you in of money. We can hear the seductiveness of, of that concept. And we know that even though that's not exactly what Cliff is doing, he's doing it for a reason. He's happy to participate in that system, right? He's happy to just close his eyes and take this job and get this money, which will make everything so much easier for him, even though it's going to make everything for the world and people and Berlin so much harder. So the other thing that they do is contrast. And they are the masters of contrast. Kander and Ebb are geniuses of musical theater contrast. So they smash darkness and fun and light up against each other to really highlight each other. So instead of being illustrative like we just saw, it's, it's the opposite, right? So one example of this is If You Can See Her Through My Eyes, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But the other one I really want to highlight is the song Cabaret, right? The biggie, the big number from the show. What's interesting about this song is if you actually go in and just listen to this song, it is in itself a pretty happy song. So I'm just gonna play a chunk of this song. Probably y'all know it pretty well, but let me just dive in here so we can hear what the song is. This is from the original recording. This is Jill Hayworth. Ladies and gentlemen, and now, once again, Fräulein Sally Bolt! What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Put down the knitting, the book, and the broom. Time for a holiday. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Come taste the wine, come hear the band, come blow your horn, start celebrating. Right this way, your table's waiting. No use permitting some prophet of doom to wipe every 
So you hear it, right? I mean, listen to this whole song and look and listen for the moments of darkness. There really are not any. I mean, there's the song about Elsie, who obviously lives too hard and then dies, but she's the happiest corpse she's ever seen, right? So she makes a point about like, if you're going to live a short life, who cares as long as it's a really happy one, right? Um, they have not put the darkness of the song in the song itself. But of course, in the context of the show, it's a completely heartbreaking song. Sally and Cliff were briefly headed for a happy ending, or at least a more conventional happy ending. Happy, having a baby together, uh, leaving the country, safely escaping from the nightmare Berlin is about to become, leaving behind this kind of seedy world of the club with its drugs and, you know, all these different men and things like that. So that's where it was going. But she's rejected that in favor of returning to the seedy club aborting the baby and deciding to stick with this dangerous, unstable life that she's known in the club. And this song immediately follows Cliff confronting Ernst and getting beaten up by Ernst's Nazi brethren. So the stakes have gotten very, very high, right? So Kendra and Ev could have written a very different song here. If Sally was gonna sing it in the club, it could have been Sally full of doubt or hurting for what she's leaving behind or angry at herself. We saw it with maybe this time that some of the songs that she sings kind of exist in both worlds where it's it feels like it is illustrating more of her feelings. Or like they've done earlier, this song could be something more illustrative of the dark tone of the moment, but instead they give her this powerhouse positive celebration number. And what's brilliant about that is that it's so much a contrast with the moment with Cliff being beaten up, the danger of that, the Nazis winning basically. They're, we're starting to see that they're even more powerful. They're powerful to the point where they are literally defeating the characters that we know. And Sally having made this choice, turning away from what would probably give her a more happy, stable life as she expressed that she sort of wanted in maybe this time. So everything is so dark and bad in the story and in Berlin that the joy and the verve in this song are almost ghoulish by contrast, right? They've gone so far in the other direction that it's actually doing what Sally is choosing to do, which is totally ignore the reality of the circumstances. And because it's so fun, it throws that darkness and badness into a true relief. It makes it seem even more terrifying and bad because you're watching on in horror as this woman slips away from you, right? You're not on board with her anymore with this song. You know that she's just made a, a kind of heartbreaking choice that you wish she didn't make. And she's just, just, doubling down on it. Kendra and Ever are not the only writers who use this kind of contrast in moments like this. So if you think of Gypsy's Act One, probably the most famous example is Mama Rose singing Everything's Coming Up Roses, which is a similarly powerhouse positive moment of optimism, but it is one of the most terrifying moments in musical history because we're watching Mama Rose ignore every right choice and double down on becoming this like single-minded monster while her family watches her in horror. So the brightness of the song is actually like making us feel that horror even more because she's like transforming before your eyes. And similarly, we're watching Sally double down on this dangerous, blind, callous path that she was on. So it's using the performative nature of the club songs so brilliantly because it feels like you're left alone, right? You're no longer on her side. You're watching her go down this path and it just destroys you a little bit that she's so unapologetically rah-rah about like, yeah, you know what? Life should be a party. You shouldn't pay it any attention. Like don't, don't let some prophet of gloom wipe all your smiles away, right? Which seems to refer to Cliff and these people who are saying that thing, bad things are going to happen. It's like, no, bad things are not going to happen. What is important is that you're smiling and you're just having a good time, right? Which we know is going to lead exactly to where it is. 
And it's speaking so much to the theme of the show, which is that you can't just turn your eyes away from the horrors that are about to happen because you'd rather just have a comfortable or fun time. So in some ways it's both illustrative and the contrast is really beautiful. And also, this song is a total gift to the actor because Kander and Ebb are giving her a million choices by not really giving her any particular musical moments of weakness, right? There's not a lot in this music that's telling you you're sad at this moment, you're having a moment of weakness at this moment. You know, this is Sally performing a song. So it's a double layer. You're watching an actor, not only act as Sally Bowles, you're watching an actor act as Sally Bowles, who is then acting for this club. Like she's feeling all of these feelings in this song, right? It's kind of a double layered song. It's very, there's a lot going on, even though it's not technically in the music itself. So there's a million ways to play this. You could play it strong and proud as an anthem of the life she loves, even if it means a short life. You can sing it loud and proud, trying to sing it loud and proud while knowing that she's made a terrible choice. She could be angry at herself or at Cliff. She could be forcibly pushing away the things that she knows are just lurking right out there, right? You can decide as an actor where to pause to indicate Sally has just heard herself say something perhaps. Or she can come to a line that she can't say easily. For example, um, the happiest corpse I've ever seen is a, is a very popular one. A lot of people decide to like really have trouble saying the word corpse because Sally is suddenly hearing that what she's signing on for is a, is a life where she's gonna be a corpse pretty soon. There's just so much you can do with this song, even though it's really one mood of song itself. Natasha Richardson nailed this song because you watched her try to sell this song, try to believe it, and to keep a brave face for the audience at the club, but eventually have a total breakdown doing it. It was so raw to watch her clearly not feel any of this, but just try to, through sheer force of will, push through this, push through and say it as a kind of like rallying cry for how she's going to live her life. It's such a strong, strong gift to the performer in that moment. And watching someone play against their feelings is a powerful moment. So Cantor and Ebb are kind of unique in this way, in their role in American musical theater. They've taken this sort of Brechtian tradition of maintaining the idea that somebody's always watching, that you're always making sure people are aware that you're always watching, and doing something different with these songs where you're not just in the moments with them, you're not just inside the songs like you are in a conventional musical theater. Each song is a kind of nugget for you to pick up and like turn around and look at, right? You have to look at it in its context, you have to look at it in the performative element of it. It's sometimes a character singing something that is not something they feel. It's sometimes a character singing something that they're trying out. It's it's an interesting thing. Kendra and Ebb never really let characters drop their guard entirely. They never totally let you into the feelings of a character. And in so doing, they're making big statements about how we perform to each other, how we are all playing characters to some degree, and how we're not only telling stories to our audience, we're also telling stories sometimes to ourselves. And in the middle of those stories, we are hearing those stories that we're telling ourselves. So it's really a cool thing that they do. Just great songs. But there's always something more going on with their songs, which is what I really, really love about their work. And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the internal and external forces that 
cause issues for Cabaret. And we're going to start with a real hot button topic with the show, which is the song If You Could See Her, uh, which is really something I consistently struggle with with the show, even though it's one of my favorites. For those of you who may not be familiar, it's a song in the second act that the MC comes out on stage with traditionally a gorilla in a tutu, and it is played as a comedy number that the MC is in love with this gorilla. And then at the end, you know, if you could see her through my eyes, originally the lyric was she wouldn't look Jewish at all. That was then changed during the out-of-town tryout when a, a Jewish woman walked up to Fred Ebb quite angrily and said, you should change it to Miskite. Uh, and that became the lyric for the original production. The movie changed it back to Jewish, and it has been Jewish in subsequent productions. So, Annika, you know, I struggle with it because I'm not so sh- I- I'm not sure what the intention is. The song has so much happening in it between how the audience reacts, how the MC is acting, and then the author's intention. I think it's it's really hard for me to try and discern what we're supposed to get from that song and is that the entire point I, I i'm not so sure it's a it's a it's murky waters for me yeah it's really um it's understandable because one of the features that the show has is because it has this sort of fourth wall breaking club moments and the mc who's a character who's really ambiguous in terms of who that character is as a person we never have any interaction with him off the Kit Kat Club stage, really. He's only this host figure. So something like this, which is this very offensive statement that this this whole song, which is about, if you could see her through my eyes, you'd think she was so beautiful and wonderful, you'd understand why I was in love with her, that the punchline is, you know, this this hideous statement, that it's it's not that she's a gorilla, which is what you think it is, that the whole kind of rug pulled out from under you is this really anti-Semitic offensive comment, because there's very little context given. So it's understandable that people would be really taken aback by that song. To me, though, I think that the kind of gut punch that that line is, is actually perfectly situated in the show because it falls right after the scene with Fraulein Schneider and Herr Schultz, where she has been made aware that his being Jewish is going to be a problem. And he has briefly tried to win her back over, which seems successful until a brick is thrown through the window of his store. So you're suddenly aware as an audience member of the danger of being Jewish in this world. You're aware that Nazism is not just sort of a hypothetical thing that's happening on the outskirts, but that it's becoming a very real presence for the characters in the show. So when you have the MC sing this song, I think what it's what it does is it's kind of like it's like the lobster in a pot almost. It's like you you know you can't feel it heating up until it's too hot. So the scene before has shown you that this is starting to get very dangerous, but this scene is the kind of stab, right? Where you're laughing at the song, you think it's so funny and then suddenly it's at the expense of Jews. You're put into the position of being an audience member for all of what is happening in Berlin. And I think that horrible feeling that you have when you hear she wouldn't look Jewish at all is on purpose because you feel complicit in this as all of a sudden. And also I think it's also, it's important for the MC because you don't know the MC's loyalties. You don't really know, you'd think that he's on the side of those who are targeted by the Nazis, which in fact, as the 1998 revival made very clear, he would be because the very last moment of the show was him revealing himself in a concentration 
camp outfit wearing a star of David and a pink triangle indicating that he was in there for both being Jewish and for being gay or just, you know, not straight because it was any sexuality that wasn't just uh, heterosexuality was, was targeted. So I think it's an interesting statement about the discomfort of the audience, but also about how prevalent this was that you're, it's not only that the Nazi character Ernst is the one who's targeting Jews, it's that it's just kind of pervading the culture. And even at the Kit Kat Club, where they're not really thinking about the fact that they're probably going to be the targets of the Nazis, it's just like a punchline, you know? They're going along with the with the public trend of the moment, which is to be hideously anti-Semitic. So to me, it's actually a really interesting placement because I, I find the songs that they have at the club really interestingly placed because they always kind of highlight or speak to something that's happening in the rest of the book, but rarely super, super on the nose. It just like kind of highlights and gives you shading on it. But that all being said, it, this is a very subtle and complex thing. And I can understand why it would be hard to parse that all out if you're just an audience member and you just might think that this show is suddenly telling you that this is true because you don't have the context, you don't have the framework. This hasn't been a villainous character who's telling you this. This hasn't been a character who's identified as wrong thinking. So I think it's kind of thrown into the pot of like the complicated, complicated tension building world that's happening in Berlin there where it's it's all getting so much worse in so many ways. Your heart has ached for Herr Schultz and Fräulein Schneider before because you know that that's not going to end well for them. But this is the first time that you really just feel your stomach sink of like, oh, this is so bad. So that would be my argument for it. But again, you know, with something that is that offensive to people, it's it's hard to make that argument sometimes with someone who's going to be hurt by it. I struggle more with it because in terms of the characterization of the MC and some of the rules that exist in the universe or just the central point of the song is like, okay, so the whole time the MC knows that the gorilla is a Jew. So is he seeing all Jews as gorillas or is it just playing on the audience expectation? It's hard for me to understand that point of it. I think it certainly accomplishes the gut punch that it um, that the moment requires and they, they want the audience to feel. I think it certainly does. It does put us as the audience in a place of complicity that you might not stand up in this situation. It, it is directly asking the what would you do question that we discussed as the point of the show. I think it's important to note that Nazism was cloaked and disguised as German nationalism. It was described as a pro-German movement to reclaim Germany's place as a great country in the world, as a leading country in the world. That's how Hitler rose to power, and that's how the Nazis rose to power. Now, the way they wanted to do that was through the wiping out of an entire population and, you know, the Aryan race and the things that we now know about Nazism. But I think it's important to note, too, that, like, Tomorrow Belongs to Me is a very simple love letter song that is positive and optimistic and hopeful. And we find out at the end of the act, which I think is another brilliant rug pull, that it's actually a Nazi propaganda song. So I, I say all that really just because it makes me question the MC. Like, it, it, is he just playing into it because he thinks the audience will think it's funny? Is it a jab from him too? Or is it a total Sally Bowles, we're living in the cabaret, it doesn't matter, outside politics doesn't matter to us. How does that interplay work? And some of it is just the interpretation of, and delivery of the line and the scene and the song. But that's kind of what I struggle with with it. Yeah. And my answer for that would just be yes and, you know, I think 
he is Jewish as identified at the end of the show, but I think it also shows that it it's not as simple as, you know, us and them that, that one of the ways something like Nazism spreads is in, you know, benign popular jokes in, in nightclub shows, you know, that, that if, if someone like the MC is willing to kind of get on board with this cultural moment that moves the needle. And I, I like it as another color in the paint box of the show, because you, you have a lot of different characters who have a lot of different shadings. It paints a beautiful world, well, not a beautiful world, a kind of terrifying world of how easy it is for a political ideology to take over, even for people who are not particularly political. So the next topic, I I think, for discussion is the relative queerness of Cliff in various, Cliff slash Brian in the case of the movie. I'm going to say queerness as an overall label and his, his sexuality in relation to Sally, in relation to the Kick At Club, and, you know, everything with the show and how much the sexuality of the show in its initial production was very limited. And we didn't really examine, the original didn't really examine that issue in the way that Charles Isherwood's original stories certainly did, and even the way that I Am a Camera did, um, because it was deemed not appropriate for a musical-going audience. And as the culture as our culture has progressed certainly bob fossey inserts it into the movie where brian is quite openly bisexual and then in the subsequent 87 revival he's not too bisexual um although it still has the telephone song and would you like to buy a girl a drink would you like to buy a boy a drink but it's not as explicit at least in text and then you've got the 1998 revival that adds in a relationship a physical relationship between him between cliff and bobby one of the dancers at the kick club and it is very much something at play even if it isn't as robustly examined as i think it probably could be for my money in terms of i think cliff is we kind of forget that cliff exists in cabaret because some of the characters and the plots are so strong and he is the camera he is the one watching but i think that his own discovery and journey with his sexuality is interesting and very much at play and a part of the story and i personally would like to see more of that because i think it's an interesting thing to examine and consider when looking at that character and how that obviously impacts his relationship with sally his need to have a pretty basic life in america with a white picket fence and and a wife and child so i don't know what are your thoughts on the relative queerness in cabaret i mean i think you make a really great point and i really i think it is very important that they brought back a lot of what makes him not straight because it's such a less interesting story i think if he's just the cliff of the original which is just kind of a corn-fed american guy who milk toast milk toast who comes to berlin which is this like world of sin and partying and all these different things and i I think that's so much less interesting than having someone who himself is struggling with a lot of different things that are going on um that he finds a home in berlin amongst all these people who don't judge anyone for anything really i think you're right i think they could have gone further i mean we talked about this a little bit but i think they could have gone further in the most recent revival by having bobby come back at some point just showing that even after Cliff and Sally start their affair, that being attracted to men is certainly something that Cliff, that hasn't gone away for Cliff. Because Sally has a line that when she and Cliff are breaking up, that basically she says that he's ignoring who he really is too. Um, And I would have loved to see a little bit more of that. And I do think, you know, as we 
have conversations about representation and storytelling and all that. I think a gay director or, you know, and Rob Marshall is, um, identifies as, as gay um, and was the co-director and choreographer of the 98 revival. But I think we've come a long way in sexuality in the 20 years since that revival existed the first time. And as a gay man, I would love to see that explored and examined because there is something, Sally Bowles has become kind of a, gay icon in so many ways and there is so much um parallel and overlap in contemporary gay culture and in queer culture and in the lgbtq plus community that i think is echoed and parallel to the world of the kit kat club and i think it would be a very interesting thing to include and really examine in in a more full and robust way i guess yeah although it's also interesting to me it's funny i feel like Portraying bisexuality is something that we still struggle with. In our culture, it just feels like there's a sense that if a character is attracted to the same gender, then they are gay and fooling themselves. So it was interesting to me that even in the film that they showed a truly bisexual Cliff slash Brian, question mark, question mark of that name. But yeah, especially since Christopher Isherwood himself was, although he, he did sleep with women when he was young, he... He was really a committed gay man by the end of his life and, and a real icon for a lot of people in that world and LGBTQ. Well, I mean, I think the other thing, uh, I think in particular in looking at bisexuality, especially when it comes to men, if a man, mm-hmm. because of our view of masculinity in this culture, if a man suddenly says like, you know, I have feelings for another man, we automatically label them as gay. Yeah. I think there's a little bit more, I don't, I hesitate to say leniency, but a little more acceptance of exploration with women. And maybe that's just coming from a gay man. But um, I think no, girl on girl action is considered very pleasing to a lot of straight men. And I don't think women are as collectively, if that's as much a part of culture, maybe just because we don't talk about it, I, I'm not sure. But it is something that I think is an issue that is worth looking at and examining. And I just think it adds a much more more full rendition of the story and a real, uh, I think the show is capable of that. Yeah, which is interesting too, because I think Sally Bowles is a really interesting female character because she, I mean, her, I don't want to say her unhappy ending, but it is kind of her unhappy ending is rejecting a very conventional women's role of being a mother, you know, going back to America with Cliff and presumably having a sort of conventional life of some sort or more conventional life, I should say. And and you're sorry that she can't do that. But at the same time, it doesn't present her abortion as being itself something that dooms her. It's how callous she is about what's happening and how callous she is about what the abortion means to the life that she's rejecting. It's never presented as like that monster. She killed her baby. You know, it's just that she had a chance to kind of have something that was emotionally deeper than she was living before by her own admission and she gives up on it. But I I think I agree with her in that like the image that Cliff has of their life together is also extremely naive. I mean, neither of them are going to be happy in this suburban life that he has pictured. So I think they're both kind of wrong, you know? She's wrong for choosing to just go back to the club and pretend nothing's happening. And we do get a sense that her life is not going to be happy, that she's going to end up certainly, I mean, I think she'll survive in the, in the world to come, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to be a long life. I think, I think we're supposed to feel that what she says about Elsie is going to be her pretty soon. And for Cliff, he's got a lot to figure out about himself, you know, that he's never going to be really happy if he just goes back to that very easy world. 
Anyway, so it's an it's an interesting show in in terms of gender roles and convention. And I think you're very right to say that there's there's definitely room for more um, exploration of that gray zone that they both operate in. And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. We're talking about some of our favorite things about cabaret. So Annika, what's your first favorite thing about cabaret? Well, I've gone on the record with this before, but I have to give it to Alan Cummings' performance as the MC. It is to date my number one favorite performance that I have ever seen on a stage or screen ever. That's a big compliment. I know. I know. It's a big statement because there's so many performances I love. There's so many actors I love. But the thing about Alan Cumming as the MC, I mean, I, I love the MC in general because I especially love narrator characters. They're fascinating to me. And, but, and the MC is just so much fun until he gets to be not fun. And I find that whole process fascinating too. But the thing that was amazing about Alan Cumming was that he came on stage, he was disgusting because he had all these kind of bruises and track marks and he just looked like he hadn't showered in days and just was beaten up. And it was so seedy and totally charming because he was so charming and you would just do anything he wanted you to do. And he was so sexy and you were charmed by him and repulsed by him and attracted to him all at the same time. And it made you have this weird reaction where you were really, like it made you have such a complicated group of feelings within yourself that that was the first time I had ever really experienced that kind of complexity and it, it really has not happened the same way before or since you weren't sure what your own reaction to him was which is why when he went through the show and became kind of sinister at times and became this person who said these horrible things you were so unsure about what you were supposed to feel and you were still drawn to him and still charmed by him and still wanted his approval in a weird way so it really kind of became this whole other level to the show and to your feelings to on it and i just it's funny when it came back in 2014 i i didn't see it again because i so treasured my my memories of having seen it the first time and his performance that even though he was doing it again i really kind of was like i just want to i just want my to keep my memories so i really have to give it to that i mean that is just indelible to me alan cummings performance in this show is forever wrapped up in the show and what the show is i do i agree it's an iconic portrayal that had already had an iconic yeah which is another thing too it's like when you're breaking the mold on something that's already been owned by someone else to such a degree um, it's remarkable to be able to change it and then kind of create a whole new indelible mold. So my first favorite thing is kind of along the same lines, but I just love the character of Sally Bowles. I think she is fascinating and complex and a magnet even from a distance watching it. I think it's just, and obviously she's, I feel like she's become a, a treasured kind of gay icon, particularly in Liza Minnelli's performance. Um, but in general, like listening to Natasha Richardson and all of the fascinating things that have been done with her as a character. I have a little bit of a theory in life. I have like two friends in my life that I refer to as quote unquote, real life Sally Bowles, which are just these endlessly fascinating people that seem to be a fantasy in the sense that they have all these fascinating stories and crazy adventures they've been on. And you start to after a while think that they might be pathological liars. And then you actually find out that every word that they say is very true and they are unedited and they just have lived life to the fullest. 
And those are some of the most fascinating, amazing people that I adore. And so Sally is the perfect version of that in my mind. And she is definitely my first favorite thing about Cabaret. Yeah, she's so cool, that character. So what's your number two, Annika? Well, my number two is uh, not unrelated. It is Vilcommon. I just think Vilcommon is one of the best opening numbers for a show ever. It's so smart in that it tells you so much about the show immediately. You know, first of all, it's in three languages, which is setting you up for Berlin and what a melting pot it is. It's literally welcoming you into the show, which for a show that had, as we said before, no real buffer between the audience and the beginning of the show, except for this like symbol and a drum roll, but no curtain, no overture, is a perfect kind of mix of like diegetic and non-diegetic really. It's like you're being, you're being led into the show and led into the club, but also into the action of the show. I mean, it, it, it just achieves so much on so many levels. And it's also just such a fun number. I mean, there's so much in it. It's such a, a catchy tune. And I think Kander and Ebb are the best vamp writers of all time. I mean, nobody writes better vamps than them. Yeah, and my next favorite thing about Cabaret is the Money Song, which I also love its original incarnation of Sitting Pretty. And I want to have a tiny moment where I speak justice for <laughs> Sitting Pretty and for the Telephone Song, which I understand why we have moved on. Mine Hair and The Money Song are better songs. However, I do like those original numbers. I think they're fun. They get stuck in my head frequently. But The Money Song gets stuck in my head all the time. I'm constantly singing money, 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 money. I always, always, always. Yeah, it's funny. Fun fact, when I went to the original production, there is a moment in that song where Alan Cumming would throw into the air a bunch of kind of green pieces of paper that had money written on them. And we were sitting close enough that I got one and I still have it to this day. I love that. My third favorite thing is the relationship between Fraulein Schneider and Herr Schultz. I just, I think it's such a, a lovely and sweet thing for so much of their courtship. It's so tentative and it's so tender and it's just so funny. I mean, it really actually provides comedy in a show where there isn't a ton of comedy, but that that whole uh, It Couldn't Please Me More or the pineapple song is such a perfect little moment of her treating this, this fruit as though it's the most luxurious gift. And then being so honest about, you know, having gas and being old. They're the kind of characters you don't get to see a lot in pop culture, which is older characters, been through a lot, kind of settled in their ways, not necessarily actively looking for something, but they find each other. And there's this real innocence and sweetness to their romance that of course becomes so heartbreaking when they can't be together for the saddest reason, you know, for only these outside reasons, only because of what's happening in the country and because she's not really brave enough to go through with that, to face that. And he's not really facing reality enough to realize how much of a problem it is. You just know that they're going to both have this heartbreaking, unhappy end. And it really is sad. I mean, it's, it's sadder than Cliff and Sally breaking up for sure. It really is. And it just, it adds such an undercurrent of real emotion into this show in, in a way that I just really appreciate. I just love them. I couldn't agree more. My third favorite thing about Cabaret is just Joe Mastroff's book, which I think is masterful in how it tackles the show. And I think part of the reason the show is so strong and continues to be 
looked at and re-examined and added to in things is because of the strength that he initially brought and that initial structure that allows for so much social commentary and allows for big production numbers and also really heartbreaking scenes and really funny scenes, as you just talked about. I think it's perfectly marvelous, this book. I also really love that song. And that scene into song is a great... There are just so many great examples of good musical theater book writing. And certainly between this and She Loves Me, he goes down as one of the all-time greats that I, I don't think gets the credit of being such a phenomenal book writer. So it is really, really exceptional. I agree. It, it's a very, very strong book, as is She Loves Me. And that brings us to our final segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. So, Annika, what do you think is Cabaret's corner of the sky? Well, I think it has a it has a few little corners. It has its own little nook. I think it was a show that was stylistically really groundbreaking. I mean, what we said about it was really kind of in your face. There was no overture. There was no curtain. You just saw a kind of empty set and a mirror facing you, which in itself was kind of an indication of the confrontation yet to come. I think that planted the seeds for a lot of shows that we see now, you know, I mean, Spring Awakening and the way that was staged kind of had its root in what Cabaret achieved. The thing that the 98 revival did of having the actors also play instruments, it's funny because it's very much in keeping with this original idea that that kind of stripped away, is it in the club? Is it in the theater? The the blurring of the boundaries really opened the door for a lot of shows to follow to, to use some of those tools. Which is why a lot of historians put it as the first concept musical or what ushers in the era of the concept musical that is not so realistic, you know, scene, song, scene, song, that really allows a a concept and not necessarily a linear story to be the evening of musicals. And, And just the fact that darker themes could be successful in a Broadway musical, that Broadway musicals could be political and could really challenge the norm and have profound things to say. And obviously there have been other examples of shows that have done that, but Cabaret really launches it into the mainstream and opens the floodgates for the shows of the 70s that will change the form by what they are adapting and what they are exploring. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into Cabaret. I certainly forgot my troubles. I don't know about you. Um, But Annika, do you want to tell us what will be in the spotlight next episode? Why, yes, indeed. Next episode, we are defying gravity and putting Wicked in the spotlight. Yeah! Wicked! 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 I'm so wicked! (laughs) I'm not that girl. Lady Base. (laughs) This is going to be like, I mean, talk about growing up formative years. Oh, yeah, not mine, because I'm older than you, but certainly a cultural phenomenon. I mean, I think hard to argue that prior to Hamilton, there had been, there's a musical that had more broken into the mainstream than Wicked. Oh yeah, for sure. Notably, Wicked was the only time I've ever seen a person who had a phone case that was the logo of a show in crystals. And I thought, this show is going to do fine. <laughs> I mean, it's still on TikTok to this day. Like, there are comparisons about who sings what best and i mean yeah it is a beloved show by many including a co-host of this podcast namely me 
<laughs> but that, <laughs> we'll leave it there. And, um, but thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!